Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. Now this is part two of a two-part series on this case so if you haven't please listen to part one first which is episode 76 and just as a disclaimer this episode does include a violent crime against children so listeners discretion is advised. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. After CrimeCon, I will be sending out True Blue Crime merch to anyone who has ever donated via Patreon and or PayPal, so feel free to donate now for your on-air mention and some future merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Just as a recap, in part one, we introduced you to the McStay family from Fallbrook, California. The family made national headlines after Joseph and Summer McStay and their three- and four-year-old boys vanished into thin air on February 4, 2010. Investigators believe they had evidence of the family entering Mexico four days after they disappeared and then the family was never seen or heard from again. Three years into the search, the San Diego Sheriff's Office announced they are officially considering the incident a voluntary missing persons case. They had found no evidence in the home or the family's vehicle that anyone had been harmed, and as of April 9, 2013, no bodies of any member of the family had been recovered. But seven months later, the case was going to once again hit national headlines. On November 11, 2013, a dirt bike rider in the northern Mojave Desert near Victorville, California, found human remains in the backcountry. Victorville is a city of roughly 130,000 people that sits just over an hour outside of Los Angeles on Interstate 15 headed towards Las Vegas. The human remains were scattered among two shallow graves roughly 50 meters off a gravel road in the middle of the desert. Authorities immediately closed off the scene as forensic anthropologists and crime technicians processed the scene. And we've talked about them before, these clandestine graves. They're very difficult, especially in this part of the United States. And and without seeing the grave, there's going to be certain things you're looking for as a crime scene investigator or forensic anthropologist. Uh, Oftentimes, if the victims are buried with their clothing on, just the, the clothing itself can give you a pretty good clue as to the time era in which these remains belong to. Uh, sometimes they, in some of these caves in these desert regions, they'll find uh, either uh, skeletons of Native Americans, they'll find skeletons of prospectors that were killed in a mining accident in the late 1800s or early 1900s. And again, it's oftentimes the clothing that they're found with, the equipment that they're found with, obviously any form of identification that's on the person can help date uh, the remains. But in the desert, it's not uncommon for these remains to to be skeletalized rather quickly with uh, predation from carnivores, rodents, insects, that kind of stuff. 
So again, it just depends on if it's a homicide and the killer decides that they're going to bury the body. If the body is left with no clothing, no items, anything along those lines, no jewelry, anything like that, these forensic anthropologists are called in because they have to look at uh, many different things about this burial to decide whether or not this is a year old, 10 years old, 100 years old, or a thousand years older or, or older so these you know clandestine graves are or i should say can be very difficult for these these people to work but sometimes just depending on the haste of the killer if they're leaving like i said ids phones watches anything that can quickly date this as a modern uh, burial it's going to make it much easier on the the investigators to uh, figure out what they have here how long the bodies have been there in this case the two shallow graves were meticulously excavated the remains of an adult male an adult female and two juvenile males were located all four victims appear to have been bludgeoned to death and the murder weapon wasn't hard to determine it was a three pound sledgehammer that was found at the site of the shallow graves so again it, it didn't list anything about clothing or other items of identification that were found but right away if you're finding this three pound sledgehammer either buried with the bodies or near the bodies and you've got damage to the the skeleton of the bodies that indicate uh, blunt force trauma we're going to quickly put it together that the bodies likely aren't going to be older than the three pound sledgehammer and if it's a more modern tool you're going to have a modern grave and two days later, dental records were used to positively identify Joseph and Summer McStay as the adults in the shallow graves. And investigators had to assume the other two sets of remains belonged to Gianni and Joseph Jr. And while the news was unfortunate, family members were able to find a sense of closure and their steadfast belief that the family hadn't voluntarily disappeared was vindicated. And we talk about this from time to time. This has to be the absolute most difficult time for a family that that little bit of hope that they're holding on to that maybe they did just go to mexico and they'll come back someday we'll see him again someday we'll hug him again someday all of that hope evaporates and is replaced by grief and loss but at the same time all of the the pain of not knowing what happened to the family that goes away as well it's replaced by a different pain but it's you don't have to lay awake at night and wonder where they are, or what they're doing right now, or, or why they did this, why did they disappear, if, if they're still alive, all that kind of stuff. That stuff goes away and it's replaced by, again, it's different pain, it's anger, somebody did this to these people, but at least the family, again, gets some sense of closure. And then at the same time, the members of the family that were adamant that the family wouldn't just voluntarily disappear they get to be a little vindicated not that they want to be but they get to be a little vindicated uh, that they were right and that they knew that this was not what joseph and summer would do and now investigators were able to move forward with the homicide investigation they were four years behind but they had done some work during those early months of 2010 that were about to pay off and as i mentioned prior to these bodies being found there was no evidence that any harm had come to the McStays. 
So as much as these investigators probably wanted to treat this as a homicide investigation, they there was also the possibility that these people were still alive and you can't really push a homicide investigation while you don't have a body. It does happen from time to time. You do have no body uh, homicide cases, but usually there's going to be some extenuating circumstances. There's going to be blood found in a house that the person was in and now they're missing. There's going to be you know, something that indicates a crime of violence occurred before this person went missing. And in this case, they don't have that and they don't have any, at, at least at this point, they didn't really have any motives for anybody to bring harm. Because that's the other thing is, yes, you're going to look around and we've done this many times before, but the victimology is he's a business owner, doesn't really run around with a, a tough crowd. She's a licensed real estate agent, mother of two young children. And then the two young children, they're just, they're living in a middle class neighborhood in San Diego. They're just, they're not the your prototypical quadruple homicide victims. So it's going to be difficult for investigators back in 2010 to really push this as a homicide investigation. But now with the recovery of the remains, they're able to look at it and they're able to go back to some of that stuff they did in the early months after the disappearance and start to put it together now saying we can forget all about the Mexico angle. We know they stayed in the United States and something terrible happened to them. Let's figure out who did this. And investigators had their suspicions about Charles Merritt very early in the investigation. And Charles had an extensive criminal history, including felony convictions for burglary and receiving stolen property. He was known to gamble, and according to his family, he was bad with finances. So Charles Merritt is the work associate of Joseph that he met with at Chick-fil-A the day that the family went missing. So, And this is the same guy that Joseph's father, Patrick, found some emails concerning uh, some questionable financial stuff that was going on with Charles. And investigators kind of briefly looked into it. And I know he did take a polygraph back in 2010. This probably was in relation to some of that financial stuff because it is motive. And he actually passed the polygraph. But I think investigators always had in the back of their mind if this family ends up being located, deceased at some point from homicidal violence, Charles is the guy we're looking at. As I mentioned, he was interviewed by investigators and they passed a polygraph test, but when answering questions about Joseph and the family, he continually referred to them in the past tense, and this was just weeks after they went missing and years before it'd be known that they were dead. And during a TV interview that occurred after the family's remains were found, Charles told the reporter that he was definitely the last person to see the family alive. And he used those words, definitely. He didn't just say, I think I'm the last person, or I'm guessing I'm the last person. He said he was definitely the last person to see the family alive. And this statement drew immediate suspicion from both investigators and those close to the, to the family. How could someone be so sure they were the last person to see someone alive unless they were the killer? And this falls back to some of the interview and interrogation trainings I went through, and I know we've talked about this in the past. People's subconscious is a very powerful thing. Oftentimes when we're talking or when we're writing something, 
we're not really even paying attention to what we're really saying or really writing. Our brain is filling in a lot of gaps as we're just kind of hitting main points. And it's during that time that kind of the quote unquote garbage part of our language that we're just filling in with words that things like references to somebody in the past tense can slip through the subconscious. You're not actively thinking about it. You're not actively thinking saying, Joseph is my best friend. Uh, Joseph and I hang out all the time. Joseph and I do this and do that. Because that's what somebody's going to say when they believe somebody is still alive and they have no reason to believe the person isn't. However, if your friend passes away, immediately your subconscious goes to whenever you talk about that person, he was a great person. He was my best friend. He used to do this with me. We used to do this together. Um, all of these past tense things only occur in our in our verbiage when either we've ceased to be friends with somebody anymore or when that person passes away. And again, when you're just trying to hit main points and trying to you know give your statement, a lot of the times people who have committed a crime know this person is dead. It's their subconscious that's filling in that garbage part of the of the language, but it's filling it in with past tense because he knows that Joseph is no longer alive. So these are the kind of things that investigators catch on to, obviously media personality, uh, the reporters, that kind of stuff, when they're asking these questions, will catch on to this kind of stuff because this is not the language you expect to hear from a good friend who thinks their friend is just missing and, and hopes the best for them. This is, this, is la this is definitive language of somebody who knows that person is already dead. So it was time for investigators to look closer at those financial discrepancies that were reported by Joseph's father back in 2010. And investigators were able to access the QuickBooks business account for Joseph's company, and it became very obvious that a lot of money was being moved around during the days after the family disappeared. And checks had been written electronically via the QuickBooks account and were made out to Charles Merritt and several companies that Charles owed money to. While the dates on the checks coincided with the day the family went missing or before, the electronic metadata for when the checks were created was days after anyone had heard from Joseph or Summer. And it appeared as if Charles had been making the checks look like they were written during the time Joseph was still known to be alive, but the file data told a different story. So back in the day of paper checks, you could do this. I could, today's the 8th of August of 2023. And I can write out on a check right now to somebody that the date I'm writing this check is the 4th of July. I can just do that. I can give them the check. It'll look like when it gets to the bank that this person held on to the check for some reason for over a month. But there's really no question about it. And it's going to be pretty difficult to prove on just a written piece of paper when exactly that check was written but because these are electronic checks and because they're part of a software program the software program is keeping track of every time that, that check is actually quote-unquote written by uh, via its electronic signature via its metadata so investigators are able to look at it it doesn't matter what date the electronic check has filled in in the date slot we can see that it was created after February 4th, after Joseph went missing. 
So it's, it's somebody who's trying to make it look like all these checks were being written before anybody went missing so that when they're cashed or when they're, somebody follows up later, if they just see the, the visual form of the check, they're going to look and say, oh, okay, well, that occurred before Joseph went missing. No need to look any closer at that. But because they're looking at the actual software, they have access to the account, they're able to see that these checks were written electronically after February 4th. And there was also evidence that someone had called QuickBooks customer service to try and have Joseph's company account and all the saved information for the account deleted. When the service representative asked the man who had identified himself as Joseph McStay for his account passcode, the man on the line stated he couldn't remember it and therefore the account and its data remained untouched. A check of the phone records associated to the customer service incident showed it was Charles Merritt's phone that was used to make the call and it occurred after the family went missing and just after the checks were written from QuickBooks. And so this is something not a lot of people realize when you call in, whether it's to a 911 dispatcher or some form of customer service, a lot of the time you call a customer service line and you'll hear the disclaimer before you get connected to somebody saying this call may be recorded for training or quality assurance purposes or, or, or however they say it. It's usually something along those lines. And people don't realize, yes, this is actually happening because if if it's a some type of a customer service money related thing, if there's an agreement made by you to pay or for them to pay you and then there's a disagreement about what was said over the phone a few months down the road, they can go back to that recording and say, no, look, here's what exactly what was you you said, here's exactly what we said, you know, this is all recorded, and it's gonna be the same thing with this. They're gonna record the date, the time, the phone number that the call came in on, what the person identifies themselves as, it's all gonna be on a recorded line, and ultimately, because he doesn't have the passcode, Charles can't close the QuickBooks account and have all that account information deleted, which includes the metadata about those electronic checks that were written. So he's able to visually make it look like these checks are on the up and up, but he can't actually delete the paper trail, or in this case, the electronic paper trail that shows that he's manipulating these transactions after the family goes missing. And the emails that Patrick had found on his son's computer detailed that the lunch meeting the day Joseph went missing had been with Charles. And Charles had admitted as much, but the reason for the meeting was conveniently left out or fabricated when investigators questioned Charles back in 2010. And Joseph had discovered that Charles was stealing from the company, and this was likely billing the company for jobs he didn't actually do or overbilling the company. And he already owed Joseph $30,000 for a loan Joseph had given him to settle a gambling debt, and now the total amount to include what was missing was somewhere around $42,000. And as I think I mentioned either in part one, Charles is a fabricator, so he's making, he's doing the welding on these large water feature structures, he's doing some of all of that kind of that work, and, and I'm sure Joseph running the business side of things, he's just kind of put his faith in Charles that Charles is 
billing appropriately for parts and labor, for uh, equipment and materials, all that kind of stuff. And it wouldn't be difficult, more than likely, for somebody to fudge some of the numbers with either the hours for the job, the material costs, the anything along those lines. You can adjust things, I guess, if, if you're willing to to risk the job and risk criminal charges, but you could turn a you know, eight-hour job into a 20-hour job. You could turn needing one pallet of materials and needing two pallet of materials, even though you only ever order and, and pay for one pallet. So I think some of this stuff was going on and Joseph got wise to it and decided he was gonna part ways with Charles. And this was likely happening during that lunch meeting on February 4th. And this is obviously very bad for Charles because he's gonna be out of a job and he's already in severe debt and this was, as I mentioned in part one, during a very difficult recession in which it was incredibly difficult for fabricators and buildings to, builders to find employment. Basically, all of America at this point was just kind of in a, a bit of a spending freeze because the, the money wasn't flowing like it had been before. Uh, definitely there wasn't a whole lot of new house construction, new building construction. So these kind of these fabricator builder guys, they were out of jobs because there wasn't a lot of disposable income for people to do this kind of work uh, or have this kind of work done, I should say. And so he's, again, he's gonna be out of a job. Everybody's looking for work, so pay is low. So if you even if you can get a job, you're probably gonna get, not gonna get paid as much as you, prob as you probably should. And so Charles goes from having this job with this growing company and i'm sure he was getting compensated well to the point that he's going to be out of work and and even compensated well he's clearly taking some extra money in uh, via stealing from the company so he's going to be out that as well and so now investigators realize they have motive for the killings by limiting joseph charles could clear his debt to the company because he owed joseph that thirty thousand dollars gambling debt that's going to be wiped out I don't even know if that was done in any type of promissory note or official thing or if it was literally just a, hey, if you're in hard times, I can loan you 30000 but you got to pay me back. And it was a verbal agreement between the two of them. So if he's able to eliminate Joseph, eliminates the verbal agreement, he doesn't owe him that thirty grand. He's not going to get discovered for this money that he's been stealing from the company. And it's likely that Joseph would have told Summer about Charles's actions so he can't just kill Joseph because if he does then Summer is going to point the finger right at him saying this guy owed Joseph money this guy stole from Joseph he stole from the company he was going to be fired basically all of this happens and then Joseph is killed Summer again she's going to point the finger right at him and law enforcement's going to go digging through all this stuff find all this stuff and he's going to get charged and unfortunately, since Summer was mainly raising the children, it would be difficult to kill just Joseph and Summer without involving the children. Again, he can't kill just Joseph. He has to kill Joseph and Summer, but it's going to be very hard to find a time when Summer's not with the children or Summer and Joseph together are not with the children. And Gianni, 
he's four years old, so he's old enough to be able to identify Charles. They've worked together for years, so he's going to know who Charles is. So Charles is going to likely decide at this point that his only way out of this whole thing is to eliminate the entire family and then stage it as a voluntary disappearance. Now, police are going to take a second search of the SUV, and this is going to include doing DNA swabs of the steering wheel and gear shifter, and which produced a DNA match between Charles and the vehicle, indicating he drove the vehicle and likely was a person to leave it parked at the strip mall outside the border crossing. He had hoped the investigators would arrive at, this, at the conclusion that they did, and that that was the family had voluntarily entered Mexico and then disappeared. So to me, the way I read it in the source material was that this, these DNA swabs were done secondary to the bodies being discovered in the desert. And I guess that kind of makes some sense. Personally, I think just given the goofy nature of it, I probably would have swabbed the steering wheel and gear shifter back in 2010 when the vehicle was discovered. Now, maybe that was how it was done and it was just worded weirdly, but swabbing uh, a gear shifter and a, and a steering wheel doesn't take much time at all. It's a very simple process. Uh, but however they ultimately did it, they're able to figure out that Charles's DNA is on the steering wheel and gear shifter, meaning he's the one that drove this vehicle more than likely to uh, this border crossing, leaving the vehicle in the strip mall. And again, I can understand why maybe investigators didn't go down this route right off the bat because they had no idea that anybody would go to this length to make it look like the family disappeared to Mexico. It just everything seemed to fit with that narrative of a, of a trip to Mexico that I don't know how, again how they would have ever figured that somebody would make it look like they voluntarily disappeared. And I think it was just bad luck that a family of four that appeared similar to the McStays happened to be crossing the border on foot at the same time the vehicle was found abandoned in the area. The final item of evidence against Charles was cell phone records that showed he was in the area of the shallow graves shortly after the family went missing. He had grown up in the area and was likely familiar with how remote the backcountry was around Victorville and felt it was a good place to hide the bodies. And his plan might have succeeded, but the area is well known for starving predators seeking out any food source, including human corpses, with rodents and insects and carnivores willing to dig through the sand and rock to get to a rare source of food in the desert. I know that sounds morbid. I'm sorry, but that's just the reality of it, is that in a desert, there's not a lot of source of food for some of these creatures, and that's why so many of these bodies become skeletalized so fast. A combination of the dry conditions and uh, scavengers. And it's, this is one reason investigators think so many homicide victims have been found in the area, and it's because the ground is so easy to dig in, so it makes it easy to make a grave, but it's also easy for that site to be disturbed and the remains brought to the surface by animals. So just as easy it is for humans to dig a shallow grave, it's just as easy for animals to dig up that grave to get to uh, the human corpses in there. And they, they basically said that's how most of these 150 bodies that have been found is just that uh, scavengers and whatnot will bring the bones up to the surface and then you know, people recognize, obviously, human skulls, uh, certain bones of the human body that are, that are pretty obvious compared to animal bones. Uh, 
they'll find these and then that's just another homicide or suicide victim or even somebody who's lost out in the desert. That's how a lot of these, these bodies are recovered. And it took investigators a year, but they built a very solid case against Charles Merritt. And on November 7th, 2014, San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office arrested Charles on four counts of murder. And Victorville is in San Bernardino County. And so there's still no evidence that a crime occurred in the San Diego area um, or in San Diego County. There's just no crime scene, no blood, just because they went missing from there doesn't necessarily mean that that the crime occurred there so it's going to be now on the san bernardino county sheriff's office they've got the the bodies in their jurisdiction and they've got the, the murder weapon in their jurisdiction there's a good chance that the family was was murdered close to the area they were buried so they're going to take over and actually do the homicide investigation and charge him out and the announcement of the arrest brought some very public negative criticism of the San Diego Sheriff's Department for their handling of the missing persons investigation. Patrick McStay, Joseph's father, laid into the department on local media telling the public the department really screwed up and that they did virtually nothing. And I can understand where his angst is coming from. He probably pushed, and I, I know that he I should say not probably, he did push the San Diego Sheriff's uh, department to do as absolute much as they could on this case and I'm sure it was very difficult for him to hear that they're not going to investigate as a homicide because they can't prove that the, the, the family is dead and while I get that and I get it to a certain degree from a law enforcement standpoint I think there has to be a certain time and where the reverse happened. I, I didn't agree with them coming out in April of 2013 saying we believe they went voluntarily disappeared at this point because it's very difficult for a single person to, to disappear if they really want to. Uh, to disappear as a family of four with two young children, these after three years, I mean, the boys would have been now seven and six. You just, you can't keep these kids quiet. Some, they're eventually, they're likely going to have to go to school. If they don't go to school, people are going to ask questions. If they're playing with even friends in the neighborhood, wherever they live with, something's going to get brought up about how they're not who they say they are or something along those lines so i would actually argue that after three years it's more likely that the family is dead than it is that they voluntarily disappeared and i understand there's no evidence for it but it's again it's almost the the lack of evidence that they're alive leads it more to believe that they're deceased so i, I definitely understand where uh patrick mcstay is coming from here is there is such a thing as nobody homicides. The suspicious activities around this, the financial stuff with uh, Charles that was known about at the time that they disappeared. There's going to be some other people we're going to talk about that could have potentially been involved uh, and, and looked at during the investigation. So to me, it just seems like after three years throwing your hands up in the air going, well, I guess they just disappeared is, again, it's not the way that I would have I would have handled it. And the sheriff went public defending his department and stated they did all they could but were limited because they didn't have evidence that a crime occurred. And I just talked about that. 
yes, but you also didn't have evidence that they actually disappeared either. The, the video was not slam dunk evidence and, and the, the stuff around the video we've already talked about, the fact that there's four days between the time that they disappeared and between this potential border crossing, what did they do for those four days? Why wasn't any money accessed? Why wasn't, why weren't they draining their bank accounts? All of the evidence of what somebody would do if they were trying to start a new life didn't exist. So again, I, I would argue that the evidence is to the contrary that, that something actually happened to them. And friends and family of Charles came to his defense immediately after his arrest, claiming he was a gentle man who never showed any indication of violence, and they didn't believe he was capable of bludgeoning an entire family, including two small children, to death. But as we've seen before, gambling and financial issues can make people do things they would never do. We covered the case of the killer grandma. She killed her husband and a complete stranger and was going to kill a third person before she was caught. Her homicides were motivated by financial strain and theft she had committed to support her gambling habit. And then we talked about Alex Murdaugh, who killed his housekeeper, his wife, and his child in an effort to alleviate his financial woes. And not that Alex was a good guy before that, but it's not as if he was a known fighter or an axe murderer. Desperation, especially financial desperation, can make make people do absolutely crazy things. And it, it, they can be so out of character from how they've lived their entire life. You can't use the fact that the guy would never hurt a fly as a, as a reason why he couldn't commit this murder unless you could prove that there was no reason for him to commit the murder but it's it's pretty clear he had monetary issues and these were going to be somewhat alleviated if if he committed the murder and then almost immediately charles began playing legal games after his arrest two weeks after his arrest his defense attorney stated charles suffered from congestive heart failure and the stress of the arrest was exasperating his condition and two months later, in January 2015, uh, Charles fired his lawyers and requested to represent himself. He told the courts he had only six to eight months to live and couldn't afford an attorney. So, I, I mean, I don't know how much of this was true. Obviously, I assume there has to be some, some doctors backing up what he's telling the courts if he thinks there's going to be any type of action taken against it. And all if he thought that he's likely in prison at this time you know on a quadruple homicide the bail's going to be pretty high and with his financial situation i don't think he's going to be able to make bail so he's likely sitting in jail during this time and hoping maybe some of these antics might get him released to be with his family for the last what he believes is claiming are the last months of his life but ultimately that's nothing's really going to change uh of course he lives well past the six to eight months and he continued to hire and fire lawyers on a pretty regular basis which further delayed the trial and we've seen this before and this is usually again the actions of somebody who's guilty because you're sitting in jail this whole time i mean yes you're going to get you're going to get time served if your crime allows you to eventually get out of prison at some point. But if your crime doesn't allow it, if it's life without parole or death penalty, really there's no advantage if you know you're guilty or you 
whatever reason you don't think you're going to win of speeding up that trial the only only time you have an advantage of speeding up your trial is when you believe you're innocent and you want to get the heck out of jail and just get through the trial already so you can get acquitted and go you know back to living your life so this is going to go on again it's finally in january of 2019 almost nine years after the mcstays went missing and over four years after he was arrested that charles stood trial for the killing of the mcstay family so if i'm an innocent guy and by my own hand i continue to delay the process for four years that i'm sitting in prison uh, a i don't have anybody to blame but myself i would i would rather just keep my defense team take it to trial if I'm going to be put in prison for the rest of my life, or in this case, face the death death penalty, then so be it. I just want to get it over with at that point. I can't imagine waiting four years to find out whether or not I'm ever going to see the outside. But again, I'm not somebody who's on trial for a murder or uh, facing the death penalty. Uh, the trial lasted for four months with both the prosecution and defense taking about two months to convince the jury that their evidence was correct. To add to the confusion, California Governor Gabby Newsom imposed a moratorium on California's death penalty during the trial. The prosecutors had been seeking the death penalty for the crime, and the judge had to stop the trial and explain that the moratorium should hold no weight on the outcome of the trial, and jurors should hear evidence as if the death penalty would be carried out if Charles was convicted and sentenced to death. So this is going to be a difficult thing, because we've talked about it in the past where prosecutors have to really be careful on death penalty trials because the jurors are going to put a lot more weight into the evidence and into their decision on the conviction because it's not just deciding whether somebody is locked up for the rest of life you're deciding whether that person's life is going to come to an unnatural end at some point based on your decision making so the judge has to be careful here because he doesn't want the jury to basically see this as it's no longer a death penalty case and then when they get to deliberations at some point somebody just goes oh well had, you know had it been a death penalty case i wouldn't have found him guilty but because this of this moratorium on the death penalty uh you know I, I think there's enough there to put him away for life because if that type of a word gets out the defense attorneys are going to say or, you know there is a moratorium but that could go away at some point this is still a death penalty case that's a mistrial so that added some confusion to the whole thing but after the closing arguments the jury deliberated for over a week before returning a verdict of guilty on all counts on june 10th of 2019. on january 21st 2020 the 62 year old charles merritt was sentenced to life in prison without parole for killing joseph mcstay he was sentenced to death in the killings of Summer, Gianni, and Joseph Jr. And I couldn't really find out where in the research the, the reasoning was behind life without parole for Joseph and then death for the killings of the other three, unless it was something where the judge wanted to make sure that if there's some issues with the death penalties, sentence that they still have the life without parole sentence attached to the case I, again I, I couldn't find any reasoning why it wasn't just sentenced to death for each and every murder why joseph's was different and charles merritt is currently on death row in san quentin prison in california and his lawyers have filed several appeals but they all have been rejected 
Now, his conviction was not without controversy. There were three people that also had made threats against Joseph McStay, and Charles' defense team was not allowed to tell the jury about these other suspects. The first was the current husband of Joseph's ex-wife. While the specifics aren't clear, it appears that there was bad blood between this guy and both Joseph and Summer. It was likely related to something involving Joseph's son living with this man and Joseph's ex-wife, but all the reporting said was that threats had been made against this uh, against Joseph and his wife in the past. But as far as I could tell, there was no evidence to suggest the man was planned on following through with the threats, and he was. I'm sure he was investigated and ruled out as a suspect. One of the worst things an investigator can do is get that tunnel vision on a suspect and when you get to trial the defense if they've been able to bring in some of these other uh, suspects uh, in front of the jury and offer alternative suspects the worst thing you can have is to be blindsided during a trial as the prosecutors and the investigators and basically not have an answer to why why isn't this guy a better suspect than than my client and so they're likely were investigated whether it's they had alibis for the entire day that the family went missing maybe they weren't even in the state of california at the time again i'm I'm sure they were investigated and that's likely why the judge didn't want to bring them in because it's likely that the investigation had revealed that they couldn't have done the crimes and as a result they didn't want to confuse the jury on something that really it didn't make sense to bring in and the second man who the defense wanted to point the finger at was summer's ex-boyfriend he lived in the area and had sent an email to summer a few months before the murder stating that he'd love her forever the man had a history of threatening people and had recently been arrested for threats against a female neighbor and her daughter and I would say the same thing about this guy as the first guy. I would assume that he was looked at, his whereabouts were looked at for the date of the crime uh, to see. And again, these these motives don't really fit the whole I had to kill the entire family thing. If your beef is with, with Joseph, because in the case of the second guy, he's now with your ex-girlfriend, you could kill him away from the house and you don't have to kill two small children. Same thing with the first guy. If your beef is is more than likely with Joseph, you can take him out without causing any harm to anybody else in the family. And again, my guess is they're investigated. And finally, another business associate of Joseph's was in a financial battle involving the company. Uh, he was the IT guy who maintained the company's website. And he'd actually tried to fraudulently sell the company out from under Joseph in the months before the murder. And while his threats were always aimed at the business and the financial side of things, there was plenty of angst against Joseph from this man. But again, you you lean on motive and you have to go to evidence. And Charles Merritt and his defense team pointed to these three suspects as men who had motive to do harm to Joseph and potentially the family. And they used the claim that there was no physical evidence to link Charles to the crime. And the jury got it wrong. However, this is where I will argue that there is physical evidence that shows only Charles Merrick could have driven the family vehicle to the Mexican border to make it look like the family voluntarily disappeared. He also had the most to gain financially by eliminating Joseph and wiping out his off-the-table debt as well as 
using some of the company's money to pay some of his other debts, and then he attempted to cover it up by deleting the QuickBooks account. And finally, even if all that wasn't enough to convince someone, his cell phone pinged in the area where the bodies were found shortly after the murders. The only way you could convince me that he didn't do it was to find DNA or fingerprints on the murder weapon that didn't belong to him. But since there are no prints or DNA on the murder weapon at all, there's nothing to point away from his guilt, and I think he is right where he belongs. And so these alternate theories are actually brought up by uh, investigative journalists that did a segment, I think, on investigative discovery, uh, Two Shallow Graves, I think was the name of it. I didn't actually see it, but they attempted to kind of paint this idea that maybe the case isn't as open and shut as it seems against Charles. But again, you can have motive, but you got to have all of them. Motive means an opportunity. And Charles had all of them, and the evidence points towards that. Whereas even if these other guys had motive, I would argue their motives are weaker, and I would argue that during the investigation there probably wasn't means or opportunities for these guys to to commit the crimes but but that is the case of the mixed day family murders so thank you guys for listening stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at true blue crime productions at gmail.com you can also find me at true blue crime productions on facebook and support me via patreon and paypal at true blue crime productions that's it for today guys thanks for listening talk to you later goodbye